Welcome to the Mere Catholicity Podcast, pursuing ecumenism through theological discussions and dialogues. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Mere Catholicity Podcast. I am your host, Jonah Saller, as always, and if you're looking for a way to support the work that I'm doing here, you can click the link below and become a local supporter there. You'll find a community of like-minded Christians that are all striving to be mere Catholics together. If that's of interest to you, click the link below and become a mere Catholic today. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Reformed Pastor Jack Shannon. Um, we're really going to just have a casual episode just kind of talking about Reformed Catholicity, what that means, what that looks like. Um, so nothing specific planned out, but uh, Pastor Jack, it's great to have you here. Would you mind just giving a brief introduction uh, for those who might not know you? Sure. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me, Jonah. Uh, yeah, my name is Jack Shannon. Uh, I am the rector of a parish in uh, Fort Collins, Colorado, northern Colorado, uh, yeah, we call ourselves uh, Reformed Catholics. Um, I guess uh, I've been doing this for about uh, six years or so, and uh, yeah, I guess that's that's uh, that's that's what I do. <laughs> cool, cool. Yeah. Well, ha- happy feast day, by the way, of of Saint Saint Peter and Paul. Um, okay, <laughs> it's a good fun day to to record a podcast. Uh huh. <laughs> um, so let's let's get into just the idea of reformed catholicity um what does it mean to be a reformed catholic and 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 what how how does that differ from say uh roman catholic or other kinds of catholic that people may have connotations towards yeah um well i think the the term is used by i would say a pretty broad uh a, a pretty broad sweep of of theological inclinations so uh, I think it can have a past orientation where um, uh, Anglicans often refer to themselves as Reformed Catholics. Even now, you'll, you'll see that um, among Anglicans, uh, Anglican websites, they'll call themselves Reformed Catholics. Uh, but you even have Puritans. Um, I think uh, William Perkins wrote a book called The Reformed Catholic. And, um, and then uh, I would say there's a future orientation and that's really the one that I've seized on. I mean, I'm certainly comfortable within, mm. uh, uh, the Anglican Puritan ref- broadly reformed tradition. Um, but I'd say the future orientation of, of reformed Catholic, I have drawn heavily from Peter Lightheart and particularly in his book, the end of Protestantism. And, um, mm. really what that has, uh, <laughs> is more kind of what the the namesake of this podcast. It's kind of a mere Catholicity. It's not necessarily slavishly tethered to traditions, but it, it does place the scriptures as, as the highest authority and then seeks to unite the church. And, and Lightheart's vision really is kind of a liturgical, uh, formal uniting. And it doesn't mean a uniform belief of everything, there, there can certainly be diversity just as there's diversity. That's one of the things I love about the Anglican tradition. There's, there's, there's room enough for guys like Packer and Pusey, right? So I think in some ways the Anglican tradition kind of embodies a little bit of what Lightheart is, is seeking after. Um, but I think his vision, and he says this, this is, you know, he's stepping out in faith kind of, uh, seeking the, the, 
the entire church being united and working out some of these doctrinal differences. And I think that has, I, I would say, you're part of that project. I'm part of that project. I saw that you had uh, Pastor Jacob Hanby on his his um, yep. his uh, article on on the Eucharist, really trying to bridge these gaps where people can maintain their own convictions, but try to find ways where we can have overlap. And there really is there that I love that stuff. I love this this desire to try to um, to try to to try to be united, but not at the expense of truth. And that, that can be a difficult thing. Um, and that's what I like about Lightheart, you know, and, and have it, he, he has a, he has a theological, uh, spine, <laughs> but he really, he really has a heart for the Catholicity of the church. And I would say I, I'm, I'm the same way. And I, I, I've gathered from your, uh, podcast, you, you having this kind of ecumenical bent, um, I really appreciate, uh, quite a bit. And so I think that that's, that's kind of the future orientation of Reformed Catholic. And another thing that Lightheart talks about in the end of Protestantism, he mentions, he mentions the Pentecostals and the Charismatics, and that's what I grew up as. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I wouldn't use that term because it's often freighted with a lot of baggage that I, I, I wouldn't adhere to. But I would say that I am a continuationist and that piety, which I would say is in, in a lot of ways monastic, um, uh, supernatural and believing in, in the continued miraculous gifts of the spirit, whether they are um, what we would call more mundane gifts, like encouraging people to having dreams or prophecies. I think that that's something that I also love about more Catholic minded traditions. Um, they're not, uh, <laughs> they're not insanely um, in cessationist where cessationists really, I think, I think they diminish God's work in the present. And um, so I, I've thought about this. My, my own theological journey is, is kind of been, I, I was raised charismatic. I went to a Presbyterian seminary and then I'm, I'm more, I say I'm more comfortable, I guess, kind of more in an Anglican uh, tradition, I, I suppose. Um, I, I would affirm bishops as being uh, of the Bene essay of the church and I, I think a kind of a more structured liturgy is good. Um, but I, I've not disposed with my upbringing uh, or even the, the reformed aspects that are more on the Catholic side. And in that way, I've kind of thought about it in terms of uh, how we think of uh, holy orders, where that mm. ontological change of being a deacon isn't done away with you when you become a priest and being a priest isn't done away with when you become a bishop. It's kind of this growing thing. And so I still have that charismatic and then that reformed aspect in me while I would still say I'm, I'm Catholic. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that's, that, that's kind of a, a little overview of, of what I mean by reformed Catholic. I, it's one of those things where it's like all the things, all the reformed Catholic things. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. Uh, all the reformed Catholic things. Yeah. I, I think Catholicity <laughs> sometimes can, especially in like Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, it can be defined so that it, it can be tied so closely to jurisdiction and jurisdictional belonging that the word Catholic becomes nearly meaningless at that point because it becomes so narrowly defined. Whereas, um, you know, I posted a little bit ago on locals the why I love Protestantism, and one of the reasons is because 
within Protestantism, you do have that kind of expansive and I would say future oriented uh, vision of Catholicity where there's a recognition that all of us play a role in the body of Christ in different ways. And the more and more that we can learn to work with one another, work through the differences we have with one another, the more that we can gather the treasure trove of truth that Christ has given his body from one another. And so, yeah, like I, I grew up in a, in a like non-denominational dispensational context, hardcore cessationist. Um, so quite the opposite of how, of how you were, you were brought up. Um, the, the spiritual gifts were basically something we don't talk about that. Like that's, that's just totally taboo. Um, and it wasn't until more recently that I started to think more closely about some of those things and realize like, you know what? I actually think the charismatics and Pentecostals might be onto something. And I think one of the ways in which we can kind of, I guess you could say, um, protect the Catholicity of what they are desiring is to bring it into greater conformity with the the creeds and the confessions of the historic church. And once we do that, then we actually have the proper boundaries of Catholicity established that those gifts and those things can actually flourish and, and grow um, as they were intended to by Christ. Um, so yeah, I, I agree with, with, with that definition. And I think that's, that's really good. And yeah, you definitely read me right. I'm, I'm very ecumenical and, uh, you know, John 17, the, the high priestly prayer of Christ, that is church be one is, is a passage I hold very close to my heart and believe to be just something we as Christians should regularly meditate on and regularly pray over her. Cause I think a lot of interactions that I see online especially online, in person too, but especially online, can just be so tribal and divisive, all in the in the sake and pursuit of trying to, you know, boost your your own position or your own tribe up at the expense of another instead of we need in other words, I think we need to come to the recognition first that if I'm as an Anglican engaging with a Baptist, I am engaging with a brother in Christ. Now, I might think that Brother in Christ has some very strange views and some views that might be even, you know, wrong, completely wrong and, and unhistorical and uncatholic. But I need to start with the recognition that they're my brother. And I think when right. we can start to do that, uh, that that starts to paint the vision of Catholicity that I think you you just kind of drew out. Now, I, I kind of want to follow up on that um, and ask a question to you, because one of the things that I've been accused of in the past one of the things I think can often come as an accusation in these kind of conversations, especially with this kind of definition of Catholicity is, well, aren't you just becoming a total relativist then where, hey, your truth, man, my truth, we can all just coexist together and love one another and you have your truth, I have my truth. Obviously, we're not saying that there's more than one truth. There is just the truth. But we are also saying that, yeah, there is some room for differences. How does that work without descending into relativism? Yeah, that's always the problem. I mean, usually it's the liberals that are talking about unity. And in some sense, it's, it's often the liberals who are, who are doing more of these ecumenical endeavors. And so conservatives or traditionalists see the liberals doing this. And so I would say it's kind of a reactionary position um, to to then become more tribal. Everybody, everybody go to their tribes. And, um, so I, I think it's quite simple. I just, I think you have a taxonomy of, uh, of, um, primary, secondary and tertiary issues. And I think that those 
primary doctrines enshrined in the creeds um, and uh, the scriptures. I, I would say I, I, I am not someone who denigrates the Protestant Reformation. I think, I think the Reformation was awesome and fantastic. It wasn't without its issues. I think Philip Schaff, a Presbyterian, said, where God builds a church, the devil builds a chapel next to it. And so there are, there are problems uh, with, with the Reformation. And, but I think that I do think that the scriptures are pers- perspicuous on the, on the primary matters. And if we hold to those and we have that as the, the norming norm, um, I don't see, I don't see a problem with then doing this cascading taxonomy of, of, uh, secondary and tertiary issues. However, and I think Peter Lightheart talks about this. Sometimes that's difficult to distinguish. What is a secondary issue? Uh, should the secondary issue be primary or not? Um, but that's part of that's part of being in the church is working those things out, be having the liberty to talk about these things charitably, and maybe um, you know then then hard lines might need to be drawn, and that is just kind of the that is the mess of the church in some ways. You look at the church at the very beginning in the, in the in the scriptures, and it's a mess. Mm-hmm. Corinth was a mess, man. The, you know, these churches right. that the apostles founded were having a lot, not all of them, you know, but there were some problems. And so we got to be able to, that's the mark of maturity to be able to enter into conflict um, and, and resolve to be a peacemaker, but then also have a backbone and, you know, strike down the wolves when, when that's necessary. So I think it, I think a lot of this, and this is only done by the Spirit. I mean, this is just a miraculous thing. Paul says we got to walk by the Spirit so that so that we don't carry out the desires of the flesh. And I think that that is part of of laboring towards unity. And it's not it's not an easy thing. It takes labor. It takes studying the Scriptures. It takes studying history, and walking in holiness. And I think that if we if we do that, Jesus prays this, so it'll happen. And uh, that's right. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's, that's basically what I would say. Yes. Keeping the scriptures as, as primary, um, using the, the Catholic history of the church as a guide, um, and, and then having that taxonomy of primary, secondary, and tertiary. Yeah, I I would totally agree with that. And I, I have to touch on this because this is just a fun subject and we keep on like skirting past it a little bit. And I can hear it in in the things you're saying, this forward thinking, this idea that if Jesus said it, it's going to happen. You're a post-millennialist. I'm a post-millennialist. We've yeah. got to talk a little bit about that and how that fits into Catholicity. So uh, I don't know you that well. So just share with me how you arrived at, at a post-millennial eschatology. I'm, I'm curious. Well, I would say uh, my upbringing in kind of more charismatic churches, it, it was healthy. We were Trinitarian. Uh, uh, the creeds were even taught. Um, it, and you had, um, I'm, I, this is kind of a tangent, but I think it's important. You had, um, I forget what his name, but the, the father superior of uh, the Missionary Society mm. of St. John. And he talked about um, his family and his father and just how important that was. And I, my, my father 
He's he's a blue collar worker, has always worked hard his his whole life, but he's been the priest of our family and he he taught he taught me to love the word, mm. love scripture. Um and I think that that is that's really important. But one of the things in that in that charismatic and 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 from my father as well environment, I, I think there's a lot of different uh, kind of strands of of kind of a charismatic the charismatic tribe. But what I grew up in, I would say, was functionally post millennial. Like they taught dispensational stuff, but we were all about the kingdom. We were all about building things. We were all about evangelizing. I, I lived in a, a very kind of impoverished neighborhood grow, growing up till I was seven, and that was part of kind of this. I would say post-millennial view of building the kingdom and Christianizing the world here and now. And they didn't have the language of that. They were just, they just received kind of the dispensational stuff and they teach that, but really functionally they believed, excuse me, in the power of the kingdom now. And so I would say I was already kind of primed for that. And also, by the way, I think charismatics having a supernatural view, like the charismatic tribe is like the, the least modern tribe because they, they just, they just believe God is still active now. And it's very easy for them to become Catholic. I I think, because as soon as I started reading stuff about the real presence, I was like, yeah, of course, like this is not, this wasn't an issue for me. Um, It's like, okay, the scripture says it and it's a supernatural thing. Yes, uh, absolutely. You know, um, but uh, I, I was uh, in my previous job. I left my previous job to uh, uh, go to seminary, and prior to seminary, um, I started reading more theological stuff. It's like, okay, if I'm going to be a pastor, I need to figure out where I stand on some of these other issues, like eschatology and baptism. And I started reading the Federal Vision guys. I I. I was introduced to Reformed theology through Greg Bonson and R.C. Sproul, uh, Bonson's Apologetics. And then I just I listened to everything on Ligonier, which I still think is fantastic. But then I started I I encountered Doug Wilson and the Federal Vision guys. And I I was like, this is this is fantastic. Like, I mean, it it was because I had read the scriptures before that I'd read the scriptures multiple times. And so it was like really kind of trying to find a place where it's like a, a tradition that comports with how I understand the scriptures. And, um, yeah, it was through that where I started, uh, you know, reading Lightheart and Jordan and, and Doug and, and then discovering kind of a preterist hermeneutic, a, a partial preterist hermeneutic, a sound one. And, uh, it just made sense to me. And it, I, that had always bugged me. Um, just reading the scriptures where it's like, this stuff will happen within this generation or Jesus, saying he's going to come back soon, this sense of eminence. I had read the scriptures from cover to cover multiple times. And I was just like, yeah, I I don't understand this. And then I, and then I encountered the post mill reading and I was like, Oh, it was such a, it was such a relief almost. And um, yeah, I, I just, I, uh, I guess from there, then I, um, uh, yeah, I read, you know, read several David Chilton, um, and, and several other guys. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm, I may not have every jot and tittle in alignment. And I think most post mill guys will say that too. They'll be like, I'm not totally sure about this, but the bulk of that kind of atmosphere is where I'm, I'm comfortable and how I understand the scriptures. 
Yeah. 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 That's, that's awesome. That's awesome. Oh, and I would just add one more thing. Yeah. The, the history of the church or the, 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 the history of the world, I think is almost an apologetic unto itself where it's like the, yeah. the, the kingdom has clearly grown and these kinds of things, like things are getting worse. Things do get worse. Things do get worse. But when you take the broad view, um, and, and you see this in scripture, you see this with the old, with old covenant Israel, old covenant Israel goes from Abraham to the nation and then from the nation to the judges and the judges to the kingdom uh, and the kingdom falls apart and then it's reconstituted as the church. And so there is, you know, Doug Wilson famously talks about it kind of being, it's not an escalator, but it's like climbing a mountain where you go down and up and down and up. And I think that any honest survey of history is, uh, uh, an apologetic for post mill, or I guess you could say an optimistic on mill, uh, perspective. And that's, that's where, you know, if we got to use titles and it to help people understand where we're at, that's, that's where I would be at. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. I grew up, I grew up dispensational. So, uh, I was always taught the world was about to end any second Christ was going to come back any second. Um, and I, I still remember there was a point in my life where when I was r- really young, I, I read all the left behind books and, they totally freaked me out to the point where I would not want my mom to go to the grocery store by herself because <laughs> I was worried one of us was going to rapture and we wouldn't be together and I wouldn't be able to find her. So it terrified me. And yeah, up until I started to really, and for me, it was Matthew 24. I was reading yeah. that and I kept reading it from start to finish and it, something just wasn't adding up. I'm like, okay, this is about a seven year tribulation happening in the future then why are the disciples' questions linked to Jesus talking about the standing temple? And why does yeah. he say that this is going to happen in a generation? That doesn't that doesn't add up. So I right. just kind of started to get into it. And the first guy I came across was Wilson. I watched uh, the, the video, I think it's called Eschatology Roundtable with Doug Wilson, John Piper, and uh, Sam Storms, I think. One yeah. other guy, Jim Hamilton. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I watched that and watched it again and watched it again and and probably went through it like five, six times and then went to Canon, started to get into Wilson. And yeah, after that, it was just like, oh my goodness, like the scriptures opened up to me in just a new way that I'd never seen before. Um, I got into some arguments with my dispensational pastor and, and yeah, and yeah, that did, that didn't go too well, but, um, I just became so convinced that, oh my goodness, like this is taking scripture for what it says and yeah the optimism that came from just recognizing and like you said another thing for me was then going okay how do i take this perspective and understand history and looking back in in and through history it's like yeah even when israel screwed up really bad even when it was really really bad god's faithfulness brought his covenant plan to fruition christ came the Messiah came, he ascended, he's at the right hand of the father, despite all of the mistakes Israel made. So what makes me think that the Jesus who has authority over heaven and earth is going to be, you know, stopped by my stupid mistakes or the world's stupid, like, obviously this is all moving in, in a redemptive direction. Um, and so really for me, a lot of it was to just taking the entire meta narrative of scripture and seeing kind of the post-millennialism just dripping out of every orifice, so to speak, of, yeah. of the entirety of, of the biblical text. Um, so yeah, that, that's really cool. How, how does, 
how does a post-millennial eschatology inform Catholicity? And maybe we can kind of, as we discuss this a bit, one of the things that I've found is when I when I became a post-millennialist, I was still very non-sacramental. I was probably maybe around like a Reformed Baptist-ish. I was still in a non-denominational church, but I would have probably said Reformed Baptist. And what I've noticed is becoming a high church Anglican, very sacramental, it has only enhanced my post-millennialism. The sacramental nature of the world, I really love Hans Borsma, um, and I think that kind of vision of this sacramental ontology the way that we understand and recognize and and just interact with the world and with God's word and with the sacraments of the church, I think post-millennialism is actually not only strengthened, but kind of reaches its fruition through that kind of view. And so I'd be curious to to get your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree on uh, the same way. Uh, I would say two, I would say in two ways it contributes or supplements. The first is that uh, a postmillennial view uh, has room for the hope of the church being united in the future prior to Christ's final judgment. And so oftentimes, I would say in a dispensational schema, it's, well, the church will be united in glory. And so it's, it's, it's otherworldly in a sense. And the postmillennial emphasis is that heaven is coming to earth. And in one of the ways, so then, then this is the second point, one of the ways that heaven comes to earth is through the sacraments. Or in a sacramental theology, those who are sacramentally minded are profoundly incarnationally minded, because that's what the sacram- the sacraments are. They are earthy. They are ways of heaven coming to earth and manifesting uh, with simple things like bread and wine or water and God transforming those things and using them as as uh, means of grace for his people. So I think that that is those those two things really supplement each other uh, uh, very well. Uh, and if we take kind of the classical, you know, I think there's a lot of ways we can define a sacrament. But if we take kind of the Augustinian, uh, the sign and the thing signified, um that sacramental understanding really informs the way you read scripture, meaning that there is signs and things signified in scripture, in other words, typology, and there are archetypes, and those are fulfilled in various ways. And so all of these things, the hermeneutics, the way that it comes out in, in the church, and then the way that we understand the world being redeemed and transformed um, I think all comport together. So I, I completely agree with you. All of these things uh, support and, and sustain and supplement each other very well. Uh, so I, I completely agree. Also, I, I, I just when I'm, I'm thinking about it, um, excuse me, um, a, a point of kind of ecumenical dialogue. I've thought about this with kind of the rampant dispensational Jesus is coming back any moment and that they see maybe the destruction of, of the church happening now or, or the nation. I, I think there's a way in which we can say, because all of history is typologically related, it's not like types stopped when the, when right. the, when the canon closed, history continues and God continues to work using types and symbols 
um, there's a sense in which we might say that the Lord is coming in judgment on his church or that he has come when, when, when people are, when these dispensationalists rightly see that there is rampant evil in the church, like there was prior to the temple's destruction by Babylon or right before the destruction uh, in, in 70 AD, they're seeing another recapitulation of what has occurred in the past. And I, I think you could say, you know what? I think the Lord, might be coming or is coming or has come because the Lord comes in multiple ways. It's not his final coming, but he does come in judgment right. or he does come in blessing. Um, and so maybe kind of like expanding what they mean by that or showing them through scriptures is one of these bridges we can use to kind of bring in the, the dispensationalist yeah. insanity. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I I I I've kind of had a similar uh thought process too. Like the book of Revelation, I I would say you almost need a kind of preterist idealist approach to the book of Revelation because we see these these types and these patterns uh, the cyclical nature of human history. So like yeah. yeah, of course Nero and Rome are the beast. But yeah, of course North Korea is a beast. Yeah, of right. course the Episcopalian bishops are antichrist, you know, <laughs> right. Like, of right. course, you know, yes. so like, it's not a, it's not a, this to the exclusion of this. Cause that's not how biblical history works. It's not how scriptural history works. And what I really like about Borsma is how he points. It's not, it's not only that we have a type that points to the antitype, but in a real sense, the antitype being Christ Jesus himself, all of these types that are related to him participate in him in their very place in history. And so you almost have this temporal timeline that is kind of brought into this vertical eternal timeline through a sacramental kind of participation. So we can look yeah. at the, the sacrificing of Isaac and not just see it as a type of Christ, but as an actual participation in that reality itself. And I think that helps us to make more sense of not just scripture, but of history. Like, what do we do with these kinds of things that are, well, they're, they're all sacramentally related. They're all right. participating in kind of the same reality and they all have the same telos, right? Like all evil will come to the same end that we see patterned in scripture. And we can yeah. have a confidence of that because Christ has all authority in heaven and on earth. Right. Yeah, and I also and, think too, um, yeah, go ahead, please. Well, and, and that plays into how we understand the sacrament participating in the altar of the cross in this kind of right. trans-temporal way. And so, yeah, again, just another supplement to type, post-mill, sacramental, it's all, it, it all yeah. coheres quite well. Yeah. Right. And I was also going to say, I think, I think this is also very important too, when it comes to ecclesiology, because one of the chief complaints of Rome in the East is, okay, you Anglicans say you're part of one holy Catholic apostolic church, but you don't look very one to us, you know, because we're, we're, we're so united here. Can't you see? Um, yeah. They, they have that kind of idea that unless there's a jurisdictional head that we're all submitted under, you can't claim that the church is one. But if like we're talking about, we have this post-millennial hope, but beyond that, we also have this sacramental reality. Then we recognize that the foundation of the church is not jurisdictional. It's sacramental. And if the foundation of the church is a sacramental unity that makes the church one, then we can say we have that already because I would propose 
that when I receive the Eucharist on Sunday, I'm receiving the Eucharist and joining myself, not just with the, the, the triumphant church in heaven, but I'm also joining myself to every single table across the entire world, breaking down every single denominational barrier that we as humans put up. And yeah. so that is the oneness of the church. It exists through the sacramental presence of Jesus Christ, who through the Eucharist creates the church. I think it's Augustine who says the Eucharist creates the church. And I would say amen to that. And that's where we need to look to to recognize this unity. And that's why it is such a such a horrific sin when you have a lack of table fellowship with with Christian brothers and sisters like Rome and the East do. I think I think it's a a, gra- a grave error. It's the same kind of error I think that Peter. Um, I mean, Paul was warning Peter against um, in Galatians. Yeah. You know, yeah, or or so, possibly even. Yeah. Oh man, I completely agree. I think James Jordan has talked about this where if you think about the globe on a Sunday morning, you know, as the sun is as the sun is going around, there's all across the globe there are people taking the Lord's Supper. It's just this one across churches every Sunday. I guess some people, you know, some people do it quarterly, but you see this kind of renewal, this covenant renewal, this sacramental kind of, uh, uh, you know, impartation that takes place. Uh, Yeah. And I I would say, you know, I think, I think, I think, yeah, we had talked about this before. I mentioned this uh, on your locals uh, website. I, I don't know who said this, but some Anglican bishop said something like the church needed to become Protestant to become Catholic. And I, yeah, I I just don't feel the draw to Rome or the East. I, I have found quite satisfying the Catholic water table of the Protestant reformers. Um, uh, and, uh, um, oh man, I just lost my train of thought. I was going to say something about that. <laughs> well, uh, anyway, that, uh, yeah. Um, what, what was the, what was the prompt? What was the question that you had asked? no. <laughs> Now I lost my train. Now you forget. <laughs> we're just lost. Uh, we're just lost in the yeah. sauce here. <laughs> I just lost it. I, I will. I will say though, on on the the earlier uh, quip you made about dispensationalists, I will say too, if we can get the dispensationalists to believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, they, there's another parousia for them to to be aware of. Like, yes, Christ's <laughs> coming is imminent. He's coming yeah. to to be present with his churches. You know, right? So. Right? Yeah. Okay, I remember what I was going to say. Yeah, that kind of, I haven't worked this out totally, but I'm persuaded um, of the, the, there's kind of a, there's a, the Pado communion argument from 1 Corinthians 11. Um, They will often use that as the the discerning of the body has to do with an, an ecclesiastical discerning. Now, this is, a departure from really the, the, the early church fathers where they would view the discerning of the body as being the sacramental discerning. Now, I don't think it needs to be either, or I think one informs the other, but I think that Paul's primary concern contextually is that some were being indulgent and the others were being excluded and that this was causing some of them to get sick and die. Now, if that's the case, then I think that Rome in the East or even Baptists or even Lutherans who practice closed communion or people who withhold their children could be possibly violating 
that discerning of the body. If you're with whole, if some are eating and then your children are going without, that's like a really heavy thing. And so, right. um, I don't know, you had said something. Yeah. Well, yeah, you had said, uh, yeah, the, the Rome in the East withholding from other Christians, I think, I think you, you get dangerously close possibly. And I'm, I'm still working through this, but I, I think you get dangerously close to violating what, what Paul is talking about in first Corinthians 11. And I would agree also with what Peter was doing, uh, in Galatia and that is, well, maybe it wasn't, I'm not sure if it was in Galatia. Was it in Galatia? I know it's in Galatians when he talks about it. I think so. Yeah. Okay. I think so. Yeah. But, but, and, but Paul, he raises it to the level of like denying the gospel. Like it's a, that's a really right. big deal. So, um, right. and, and th- those are things where it's like, man, this just, this is just what the text is saying. And I think we got to take this seriously. So. Right. Right. Well, and what's interesting too, is you see, uh, in the earlier church, I think of Augustine, for example, Obviously, he was very, very hard on heresy, and he fought very strongly against it. But there were times where he still acknowledged the baptism of the heretics as being valid, you know. And so, obviously, I'm not saying Augustine would have argued that they should be admitted to the Lord's table as unrepentant heretics. But if if we're recognizing each other's baptisms, like Rome and the East are, and Rome in the East, in addition to recognizing our baptisms, acknowledge that we confess the creed of the church and that we're not heretics, then I don't see any sort of real way that you can avoid the conclusion you just made that, that they are dangerously close, if not fully, fully committing that kind of error. Um, so yeah, I think that's really important. And that's why uh, we were chatting a little bit briefly, but that's why I do err on the side of open communion as opposed to closed communion, just because I think, I think one of the ways, cause I, I could see some of the pushback would be, Hey, if you have, if you have open communion, well then just anybody can walk up there and just anybody can receive, you know, and that's, that's just careless or, or whatnot. But what I would say to that is one, if you are a truly faithful pastor, you will know your sheep <laughs> and because yeah. you will know your sheep, you will know who's going up. And if the chance happens that you have people that you don't know there that come up, it's the Lord's table. It's not my table. You know what I mean? Right. I, I am I am serving something that Christ himself is presenting. And that's why I think Paul says, let a man first examine himself. He doesn't say let the priest or let the presbyter examine the person. He says let the person examine themselves. And I think that's yeah. a really key part of the text because I think what it what Paul is trying to say is that ultimately you coming up to receive is between you and the Lord. It's not between you and the presbyter, unless the presbyter knows for a fact that you're a notorious sin. Obviously at that point there's an intervention, but it's between you and the Lord. And so you knowing your heart, your state of heart, whatever, you will know whether or not you're coming to receive in a worthy manner or not. And so I think I think the the argument against open communion for like well anybody could come up and receive it just it doesn't it doesn't really land fully when you consider that a a faithful pastor should know his sheep and ultimately the examination is to be done by the individual coming up. Uh do you yeah. have thoughts on that? Uh, I I completely agree. I th- I think the only thing I would add is you could uh and and I know people make these pronouncements or maybe it's in the bulletin. Um, 
you, you just you you make the warning or you you put the guidelines or the 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 fence as it were saying all baptized christians who uh you know are are living repentant lives may come to the table or you know and um right. and so you you like our Ezekiel's watchman on the wall you have made you have blown the trumpet you've you've you I don't think would be guilty of the blood that would they would incur if they decided to go against that word um so yeah I completely agree with you I I think that that would be on them if they were to take it in an unworthy manner or unbaptized person if you're in a big parish with you know a thousand people or something um, or at some kind of, you know, right. I don't know, conference. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think that that's, I, I, that's, I, I, I wish more people were kind of on that, uh, on that wavelength. <laughs> that's yeah, when I, yeah, I, 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 I definitely I, agree. I, I, uh, uh, that's what, um, the CREC generally does. I, 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 I trained in Moscow at Greyfriars and I was at, uh, Christchurch okay. for three years and uh, that's what they did, and I, I thought that that was I thought that that was very Catholic of them to do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely agreed. And I th- I think you know if you are following the historic pattern of the church with a liturgy, the warnings that you said are already there. You know, like the Book of Common Prayer, very clearly. You then who have repented of your sins and blah blah blah, you can then come to the Lord's table. So that's already right. there. And I would say like the implication. I think it's. Give me a second here. I think it's article yeah article 26 of the 39 articles of the unworthiness of the ministers which hinders not the effect of the sacrament i think that can also be flip-flopped right the the unworthiness of the recipient does not affect the minister or the efficacy of the sacrament and so just as yeah. we don't have to be worried that it's not valid if the minister's in sin we also if we're ministers don't have to worry that if somebody comes up in an unworthy manner that we're guilty of that person's blood um so yeah, yeah. Let, that's let, good. Let's let's chat a bit about um, federal vision because that that's <laughs> been a big uh, entrance to me. And even though I would put myself probably pretty close to the Anglo-Catholic line, I, I mean, I'd call myself an Anglo-Catholic. I would I would qualify that as Anglo-Catholic with reformed sympathies, and my reformed <laughs> sympathies lean in the way of federal vision for sure. I love the work that those guys did. I love the federal vision book. Uh, Peter Lightheart, Jordan, Wilson, Rich Lusk, they've all had a tremendous impact on me. So yeah, let's dig into that. It's a, it's a can of worms and the word federal vision immediately <laughs> causes some reform people to go and run and hide behind rocks, but, uh, let's, <laughs> let's pull it out and talk a little bit about it. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I, I was first kind of exposed to Calvinism in undergrad and I, uh, it was kind of your standard Calvinism that's in America. And I was like, yeah, I, uh, I don't, I don't believe that. I, I don't believe that somebody wasn't really a Christian, you know, and, th- and that's why they fell away. Um, that, that kind of stuff, or, you know, nobody can ever fall away. You know, I mean, these are facile kind of caricatures, but that's what gets presented. And I was like, yeah, no thanks. Right. Um, and then I started, yeah. And then I started kind of, it was really in the apologetics aspect from Bonson. And I, like I said, uh, uh, RC Sproul, but yeah, then with Wilson, um, I started, I listened to the Auburn Avenue, the 2002 conference 
And I just started devouring it. I was like, this is so good. Because really, my hesitations with kind of the broader reformed world, and so I was like, I'm not a Calvinist, they were being addressed by these guys. Like, they were afraid to criticize their own tradition. And um, and I, I just really gravitated towards that. I really appreciated that. It just sounded biblical to me. They weren't afraid to quote James on justification. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> even that, you know, I, you know, being presented with kind of the facile, um, you know, justification by faith alone. I think, I think that it's fine if you understand it in kind of the robust, you know, magisterial reformed way. But I had always been like, I'd always, there, there'd always been something like that. Uh, there, there'd always, that had also been kind of, um, uh, I don't know. Um, it didn't sit well with me just because in the Bible, James says we're justified not by faith alone. And that may be a simple kind of thing. And people would be like, no, you have to understand. Dot, 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 dot. And I was like, well, I still want to be able to say what James said and not be right. considered a heretic. And so when right. I saw that the Federal Vision guys were um, – saying these things and, and I you know started reading Norman Shepard and and then listening to Steve Schlissel actually had a really big impact on me he he's this he's a congregational reform pastor in in Brooklyn mm -hmm. uh I I just I I really resonated with it and then of course um you know like I said I was I was trying to figure out what I believed about the sacraments and baptism and immediately discovering covenantal theology, I was like, oh, well, this, this totally makes sense to how I understand the Bible. It makes sense of the Bible in the sense that there's a unity to scripture and, and the federal vision really emphasized the objectivity of the covenant. And that has a sacramental kind of grounding with baptism. You're baptized, you're in Christ. You're one of the elect. <laughs> I mean, right. you can make, you know, right. you make the, you make these distinctions of, you know, covenantally elect or decretally elect or however you want to do it. And, um, so through all that, I really appreciated, um, fundamentally these guys were just trying to be biblical where I think some guys like Wilson were able to find streams of reformed thought that were within the parameters of the confessions and then other guys like Jordan and Lightheart were probably not afraid to draw outside the lines of their own confessions. And I appreciated that. Right. I, it's like we should be able right. to draw outside the lines of these confessions, which are not infallible. They're helpful. And that's right. something I think you've said before, where um, I think you had a, a one on the static reformation where these confessions yeah. become, you know, paper popes. And Jordan was just, you know, he was like, we should be writing our own confessions and we should be moving forward and taking the good stuff and spitting out the bad. So really that kind the federal vision guys embodied the Semper Reformanda uh, slogan better than anyone I had yeah. ever seen. And it really kind of brought out really kind of the nastiness and ugliness of the rest of Presbyterianism, which it was like, ugh, I don't want to be part of that. Um, but I right. think those guys really had a lot of charity. They really had a lot of sincerity. They have those things. They took a lot of, you know, they took a lot of persecution in some, in some ways, cause they were speaking against, sure. 
things that I think are really as simple as we need to obey what God has said. And that in this world of antinomianism, I think really gets at, this is where my charismatic, charismatic stuff comes in. I think there's spiritual stuff going on where even these pastors mm-hmm. who might, maybe they're technically, you know, they would say we need to obey, but the way that Wilson says we need to open is heretical. And, you know, I think that there's just some spiritual dark stuff going on with those criticisms. And I think guys like Wilson and Lightheart and Jordan were, were definitely being more faithful. And so, yeah, I really appreciated that whole thing. And then it, it really did open up, um, uh, I guess, uh, the, the Lutheran and Anglican traditions where it's like, Oh, okay. You can, you can say, that baptism regenerates in these traditions and nobody's going to flip out. So I think I'm probably going to be more comfortable in these traditions, (laughs) you know? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. So a lot of the attraction for me, it kind of came almost like I kind of almost did a loop because for me, I I was coming out of like my non-denominational dispensational upbringing, trying to find, a tradition that had roots post-millennialism was the first thing for me that kind of fell in place. And so after that, I was like, okay, I need a tradition where I can find this. And really Presbyterianism was kind of the obvious first choice. And so I started to, to move in that direction. I was heavily considering it. And I remember reading through the Westminster confession of faith. And there were some things in the Westminster that I kind of had some quibbles with. And when I started to voice some of those things, I was no, you you can't question that. I was like, what do you, what do you mean? I can't question that. Well, that's that's the confession. You don't question the confession. And like pretty soon, I I realized like you hypocrites. Like I, I don't know how else to say it. Like you hypocrites. You're going to condemn the the papacy and the Roman Catholic infallible magisterium, but you're going to prop up your reformed confessions as being the same kind of you know, paper magisterium, uh, that, that doesn't make any sense to me. And a lot of this was not even like the criticism. And this was the most frustrating part was the criticism was never, you shouldn't question that because this is what scripture actually teaches. (laughs) It was always, you shouldn't teach that or talk about that because the confession doesn't say it. Okay. Well, if, if, if we're not rooting this in scripture and I'm telling you, I really think this is what scripture's saying. And I can actually point to church history where I think that these confessions might be in some discontinuity. We've got a problem. And so that, yeah, Anglicanism, Anglicanism for me was really kind of a place where I found like I could have a little bit more leeway and, um, an ability to, I think, be more robustly Catholic, you know, the reason that the reformers rejected Rome or one of the reasons was because of this dogmatic, infallible magisterium. And so who would want to be part of a reformed tradition that has set up the same exact thing? You know, we need to recognize that, that kind of forward moving, um, progress that it's not, like I said before, a static reformation. And so, yeah, Jordan and, and Lightheart, I've, I've read a lot more Lightheart than I have Jordan, but I very much appreciate Jordan, especially listening to him. Uh, reading him is fun and and his books are just, I can spend like three, four, five hours on two pages, just going over it over and over again. But I, I thoroughly enjoy listening to him because the guy is so funny. (laughs) He's so quirky and I love it. (laughs) You know, you listen to him and he'll just like, 
he'll toss out this insane idea. Like, it's just like, you know, oh, here, take this. Think about that. Chew on it. You're like, oh, dude, that's insane. Why? Uh, and then you chew on it and you're like, actually, that makes a whole lot of sense. Holy cow. <laughs> and so yeah, uh, he, Doug, he's, Doug he's Will- definitely like, go ahead. Uh, yeah, Doug Wilson has described Jordan as uh, running up the stairs three steps at a time. Which I, I think is <laughs> yeah. I think is a good description. Yeah, yeah, he's he's definitely an acquired taste. So for me, I kind of started with Lightheart, right? And Lightheart is a very, uh, you know, he's he's brilliant, just like Jordan, but he's very ordered in his approach. You know, he has kind of. Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay. And he he's always talking about, uh, oh, Jordan's had such an influence on me, such an influence. I'm like, oh, I should check mm-hmm. out Jordan. Listen, I'm like, oh, totally different person. <laughs> uh, but yeah, both of them, uh, really, I think they were kind of the first ones that showed me that there is a way in which you can be reformed in your theology while also very robustly Catholic not tying yourself down to any sort of infallible magisterium of any kind, paper or otherwise, but really digging into the scriptures and saying like, okay, if this, if this scripture is an encounter with the eternal word of God and scripture itself is eternal because it is the word of God, then there is no, there's no limit to the depth in which we can grow in our understanding of scripture. And I was seeing too many people that were like, yeah, th- this stuff was figured out years ago. So we're just going to kind of sit here. And it's like, that's, I, I want to know more. I want to grow in my faith. I want to dig deeper into scripture day by day. And like you said, they were the guys that I really saw doing that and embodying that kind of Semper Reformanda attitude. And so, yeah, very attracted to that. And one of the things that I most appreciated about both uh, Jordan and Lightheart is the the level of, um, depth of exegesis that they bring to the Old Testament. And and for me, growing up dispensational, the Old Testament and the New Testament were pretty much unrelated texts. You have one that's dealing with Israel, you have this other one. And so for me, that was like just an incredible, incredible discovery to go, oh my goodness, Christ is here. Like on every page, everything is, is all about Christ. And and we're we're digging into these texts because he is present here. So, uh, yeah, I really appreciated that. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about while we're on this topic, because we've already opened up a can of worms, is the subject of justification. Because that's kind of been the federal vision thing that has gotten, you know, basically a denial of the gospel is what you hear from a lot of these reformed camps. Obviously, I don't think it is. Obviously, you don't think it is. but. Um, what would you say, uh, maybe summarize, especially for maybe those listening that are unfamiliar, what is the, the kind of federal vision understanding of justification in a nutshell? Well, I, I, I would have to preface it by saying what I think a lot of people say, that there's not a federal vision stance. Um, it's right, not right, a unified, yeah. uh, uh, it's not a unified doctrine or or body of doctrine it was a converse it it was a a conversation go ahead it's not a motorcycle gang of of guys riding around (laughs) disrupting the the city folk (laughs) well in some ways i kind of miss that but yeah they they, um i think they it, it was really just a conversation and it was trying to wrestle with some of these things that i think 
yeah, C.S. Lewis talks about the inherent mystery of the doctrine, and he, he it's uh, his essay on Christian reunion. I think it's an Anglican speaks to Roman Catholics. He's like, I don't think any Roman Catholic think they're going to get to heaven by founding an abbey, and I don't think any Protestant thinks they're going to get to heaven by sinning up a storm. And and he says, I think that we could probably these caricatures are are not true of either camp and the the issue of justification is there's just an inherent mystery there and um i mean we can know that the scripture does speak about it but the way that we synthesize and systematize we should there should be leniency in how we talk about it and i don't think that having these formulas or these shibboleths of articulating justification by faith alone is is um the bar of what the gospel is um and so that's one of the things i sympathize with the anglo-catholic kind of uh uh realm is there's there's room to talk about these things and um so but yeah as far as the federal vision i just think that they were they were in some ways within the reformed scholastic tradition reformed orthodoxy there there is a more it's a less lutheran and sometimes it's accused by lutherans as being more roman catholic and its justification acknowledging a future justification when it comes to the rewards of faithfulness and i'm i'm comfort i like that stream i like that protestant stream um and then even so i think there were some that were just reaching back to a historic reformed approach um and then there were others who were maybe drawing outside those lines and you know guys like norman shepherd you read the call of grace you read these things and i think he's just being faithful to the text and so um yeah, yeah the ability to be able to talk about these things and not be denounced as heretics and I don't think that the doctrine of justification is the issue on which the church stands or falls. I think it is in the sense that that was very important at the time. If, if Rome is teaching these things that are absolutely necessary for salvation, um, you know, in whatever form it was happening in the late middle ages, it's kind of, it was kind of like we needed that strong correction. And I think we have, embodied that in us we understand that if you don't make it to a priest to do auricular confession you can confess to god and you are just as forgiven as if you confessed it to your to your pastor your priest and that in some ways is connected to justification by faith alone we trust in god and abraham believed god and he he was credited with righteousness so there there is truth to that and yet Abraham is justified when he puts Isaac on the altar. And so how we synthesize these things, I, um, I don't feel like I'm gifted in, in resolving that debate. It seems overwhelming to me. I, I, I read, yeah. you know, it's been going on for a long time between Piper and N.T. Wright and between, you know, the Federal Vision guys and, and, and the Presbyterians. And um, I, I guess I, I, I'm happy with like the Sunday school answer of we just need to trust and obey. And I don't feel any anxiety yeah. over saying that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I feel totally relief. Agree. That's just what yeah. we need to do. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think the thing I appreciate about the, the federal vision, uh, specifically, um, in the book when I read it, um, the articulation of justification there 
it seems to, and Rich Lusk, actually, he's got a very short video on, on YouTube uh, put out by Theopolis talking about how you resolve the, the works debate between St. Paul and, and St. James. But one of the things that I really like is, is that it takes a very holistic approach to looking at all of Scripture, where I think one of the discomforts I have with some of the Reformed uh, and even Lutheran articulations of justification, at times they seem to almost go, this is what justification means, and yeah, James over there, we're not, we're not really going to get into him that much. And it's like, no, we need to acknowledge everything that scripture says on this subject and we need to synthesize there. And so I, I do appreciate that very holistic approach to reading scripture where it goes, yeah, we're not going to look over this text or reinterpret it just because it's a difficult text. We're going to try to take it seriously on its own terms and, and whatever that means, we're going to submit to it, you know? So I, I fully, yeah, fully embrace that as well. Um, maybe I, 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 I don't want to go Go ahead. I, if I if I if I may, just one more thing. Uh, well, two, I guess. Uh, yeah, Lightheart. Th- this is a concern with Catholics, as far as like, and again, these are kind of caricatures because even even Lutherans will say that we need to obey. They just they're very insistent on the justification sanctification distinction, um, and I'm okay with blurring that distinction. <laughs> Which, which, right. you know, right. ca- the Catholic, you know, more, a more Catholic minded tradition is okay with doing that. And, um, I, I think Lightheart, his contribution to this is, um, uh, coming up with this idea of the deliverdict where it's, it's, it's a verdict, but it's also a deliverance yes. from sin. And it's like, I, Boom, there it is. It, we are declared righteous and we are also truly delivered from sin so that we can walk in holiness. And I think that that's a really gr- that's helpful. Also, Hans Borsma, I'm sure this has been talked about by many people, um, but he was the first one that I saw draw attention to Irenaeus's recapitulation theory of atonement and our, our union with Christ plays into our justification as well. And of course, in the Reformed tradition, Calvin acknowledges union with Christ all the time. And so I think right. that that's also a helpful thing. I think um, I think maybe on your podcast, you had talked about the iron and the fire with the sacraments. I think that I've heard um, Christian Wagner on the uh, militant Thomist, or, or I can't, it's, mm-hmm. it's named something different now, talked about that with justification, that it's this, it's this infusion, like an iron and a fire. And I'm okay with that too. I think that that's, it's, it's right. another helpful thing in, in describing these, uh, these doctrines. And I, 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 I'm definitely not about making someone heretical for describing them in a different way. Um, so yeah. Right. I think, yeah. I think yeah. with, like what would distinguish me from Rome is, um, this very elaborate treasury of merit. And then even when right. absolution is given, somehow the merits of Mary and the saints play into that. And I definitely have visceral kind of like, yeah, no, thanks. I'm, I'm okay with the, right. the full, the merits of Christ covering all of these as well. Yeah, totally agreed. Yeah. I think um, when I, when I was studying this quite a bit, it seemed to me that Rome and Protestants agree 
on nearly all the causes of justification. Meritorious cause, we both agree it's Christ, you know. Efficient cause, we both agree that it's through baptism, through faith. The the big problem was formal cause. The formal cause is where everybody was getting caught up. Rome wants to say the formal cause is the infusion of grace, and the Protestants want to say the, the, the formal cause is the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And I really do think that the way that we can get around this difference, since we agree on everything else, is by just locating the formal cause of justification in union with Christ. Because if we emphasize union with Christ, then we do have an infusion. Christ is in us. We are in Christ. There's a real union happening that's an ontological reality. But at the same time, that union also affects us in such a way that it's not our own righteousness infused that God is looking at to declare us righteous. It is the righteousness that comes only through our union with the righteous one. And so I've, I've talked about it that way. And as far as I can tell, there's been some Roman Catholics that have been pretty happy with that and some Protestants too. So I'm like, okay, maybe we can have some progress. Cause like you said, Calvin talks about this. He talks about union with Christ. And I think we need to start, re-emphasizing that that concept and i think it could it could go a long way in in these ecumenical discussions um maybe the the last thing i don't want to keep you too long but maybe the last thing we can we can chat about on the recording we can chat more after the recording if you want to but yeah um let's get into maybe some of the distinctives of your theology that maybe are pretty distinct to you right now what what would those be? Well, I would say, you know, I'm I'm a son of the West. I'm a Western Christian. And in the West, generally, uh, you know, over time, uh, we stopped giving communion to to infants and to and to toddlers because of the way we understood confirmation. And um when we baptize when we baptize infants, when we baptize anyone, uh, we confirm and then we commune. And if they're able to. Um you know, and, uh, or as soon as they're able to. And I actually, I actually think that the infant who's not able to commune with the elements is still communing, um, through their connection to their mother, um, through the, through their nursing. (laughs) So Mm. I, 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 I'm, I'm, uh, there's still a connection there, but, um, I think, uh, so Pado communion is just kind of something not practiced in the West. And I think that the right. biblical arguments are all in favor. And I think that the, the East has it correct on, and I'm, yeah. I have, I almost have more criticisms of the East than I do of, of Rome, but um, I, I do appreciate the East on a, on, a, on a number of things, but this is one where I would stand in solidarity. And I really think the only reason that it's not practice is a, a slavish adherence to developed tradition. And that's a hard yeah. thing to overturn. And then the other thing um, uh, I would say is um, uh, how we understand uh, marriage. Uh, I would say we take a traditional approach to marriage and what that has meant now is just, we believe that with most conservatives, marriage is between a man and a woman. It's usually in this context of against homosexuality. It's a heterosexual versus homosexual debate. And then they quote Jesus on this 
And in those quotes that they're quoting from, Jesus, and I think that's a fine application, you can do that because it is true, but in those quotes, he is talking about divorce and remarriage. And I would say the biblical and the Catholic tradition in the West, at least, the East deviated fairly early on about the 600s or 700s or so. But the West, and I think that this is why the West has been more victorious over her enemies than the East has, we have maintained, mm. uh, we have maintained, I would say, fidelity to Christ's words on divorce and remarriage for a very long time. And then the Protestant Reformation, and, and what I mean by that, Jesus says that anyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery, even if she'd been divorced for, for adultery. This you can find in the early fathers. And of course, there are um, variations and dissensions. But generally, I would say, you know, Jerome, uh, Augustine, all the way to Aquinas, they are all saying that marriage is lifelong and that remarriage is adultery. And Augustine even argues that if they are remarried and in adultery, they need to separate in order to be admitted to the font of baptism. And that's what I would say as mm. well. I would say, just as conservatives would say, homosexuals who are married need to uh, divorce as a form of repentance. I would say those who are remarried are in continuous adultery. As Paul says in Romans 7, if she's joined to another man while her former spouse is still alive, she will be called an adulteress. That, that repentance for them looks like separation and remaining single. And um, that's a hard thing, particularly in the Reformed world where everybody is yeah. just constantly encouraging getting married, which marriage is good. We, most people are called to marriage, um, but uh, not at the expense of, of the words of Christ. And celibacy, I would say, is better. Marriage is good. Celibacy is better. I think that's what Jesus and Paul teach. And um, in some cases, some people are, are uh, they have to make themselves a eunuch for the, for the sake of the kingdom. And I think if you are in an adulterous remarriage, um, then you need to separate. And I don't think that this is, I think that this is the fundamental issue related back to post-millennialism and covenantal curses and, and blessings. We are like in, in conservative churches, we are systematically defending and perpetuating covenant breaking through adultery. And I think that that is the fundamental explanation for why the church is losing and almost it's just fracturing and falling apart because there's not really an interest in repenting of this sin. So I, I would say that's a pretty strong distinctive. Mm. However, I have met um, several priests from the continuing Anglican churches who are starting to realize that this is a problem because the the Anglican church is just their divorce and remarriage is common and they are ordaining yeah. or consecrating bishops who have been divorced and remarried several times. And they're starting to realize, okay, this is one against Paul's requirements for eldership it needs to be a husband of one wife. And it's against the dominical decrees. And then they start reading the fathers and they're like, Oh man, the fa the fathers generally are, mm. are, would say that this is adultery. So, um, and they're leaving, they're leaving their, I've, I've met some that have left the diocese of the Holy cross. Some that have met other jurisdictions, uh, left other jurisdictions because of this issue. And so I, I believe the church is in a bad state because of it. And I think 
we need to repent of it. And so that has caused mm. us, we are, we are currently an independent uh, uh, congregation, but we don't want to be, we want the church to repent and we want to be in, in full, fuller communion, uh, you know, with, with right. these other churches because of it. So that's a, that's a pretty big distinctive. It's formed, it's, it's, it's really kind of informed my own thinking on a lot of things. And, uh, if anyone mm. wants to know more, uh, I, I did write a book on this called Contramundum Swagger, uh, uh, following Christ in a divorce culture. And, uh, uh, if anybody right. wants, I, I can send sure that to, to them. For, I can send that to them for free if they just uh, contact me and uh, give me a shipping address. Okay, cool. And I'll, I'll drop a link to that as well. Is it is it on Amazon? Yes, it is. Okay, I'll put a link to that down below too. If anybody's interested in checking it out, yeah, that's that's very interesting. I have to say. Um, and this is this is to my embarrassment. It's 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 a subject that is so deeply neglected that I haven't really thought much about it until much more recently. And I think that is a testimony to how far it's fallen out of just being the standard for the way the church deals with with remarriages and, and marriage in general. Um, wh- one question on that, um, just out of my curiosity, I think I know the answer, but I I just I just want to make sure. So let's say you have a couple that has been married. It's, it's the only marriage. It's a, it's a God covenant marriage before the Lord. And in, in this marriage, you have a spouse that cheats on their spouse, leaves the marriage. And the other one is a, is a very faithful spouse has not, has not been guilty of any sin in the marriage after the spouse leaves and separates. And the other one maybe wants to stay, wants to remain. You would say then that that person is obliged to then live out the remainder of their days in in a celibate state, acknowledging the validity of their marriage and and just living in faithfulness to the Lord and the spouse should repent of their of their adultery. Would that be how you'd understand that? Yeah, I would say I would quote Romans seven, where Paul says a woman is bound to her husband as long as as long as he lives and uh, Mm. that in those in those instances of adultery or desertion that uh, divorce uh, is permissible, but not remarriage. And Paul says this in first Corinthians seven, you've been called to peace. And he goes, and then he says, how do you know whether uh, you will save your spouse? And I think that that is the implication there is remain single and pray for reconciliation and in hopes that Mm -hmm. they will return Mm -hmm. to you. And so I think that yeah. that is that is what uh, the uh, how we should read those because uh, in the Protestant tradition generally we've imported that if those occur then remarriage is an automatic um, right or privilege or that it dissolves yeah, right. the covenant and I would say those are exceptions for separation or divorce to use Catholic canon law uh, from bed and board. So you can separate or divorce in those instances, but you you ought to remain single or be reconciled. And Paul says this. Paul says this in First Corinthians seven. He says to to he's speaking to a woman. He says, uh, uh, "Let the woman not divorce her husband, but if she does, let her remain single or be reconciled." So those are the two options: remain single or be reconciled. And uh, so that's that's what I would say. And I think you see that um, in in the early fathers as well. Yeah. Yeah. 
I, I can imagine a lot of people watching this are going to go, oh man, what a what an outrageously hard line position to take. But I, I do, yeah. I think it's biblical, it's, and I think I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, and it's in it's in the 1604 canons of the Anglican Church too that that you there if anybody has a living spouse, um, they are not permitted to be remarried. There's no remarriage mm. um, in the 1604 canons. Yeah. So really, this I think you already said it, but we need to recognize that this is not like. Some people, some old fuddy-duddies looking way, way back in the day and saying like, hey, some of the old church fathers and Paul and oh, yeah, we think we're, this is just the traditional Christian position that's been abandoned, uh, right? Yeah, in the, in the West, the East the abandoned West. it in the, in, in about the 600s or so. Okay. Yeah. And then they yeah. got taken over okay. by Muslims shortly after that. Yeah. Well, very cool. Yeah, this is that. That's a that's a. I think a good note to end on. Give some people something to munch on and chew on because that's definitely a, a very pressing issue in today's in today's current church culture. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd encourage anybody watching, listening, consider consider thinking about this and taking it very seriously because we would not want to be guilty and bring condemnation upon ourselves for forsaking covenant faithfulness to to the Lord um, on matters of such such great importance. So I'll, I'll cut the stream there, brother. But uh, thank you so much for for coming on, chatting with me. This was this was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, thanks for having me on. This has been a pleasure.